when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as someone who's de-stressing from the news by reading about literally any other time in history, but in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair, kind of perfectly timed, is Jill Lepore, a professor of American history at Harvard and a staff writer at The New Yorker. And I am one of her biggest fans. I don't know if I'm the biggest, but she's the author of several books, including The Secret History of Wonder Woman, These Truths, A History of the United States, and This America, The Case for the Nation. We want to hear about her case for the nation right now. But her latest project is really fascinating podcast about the history of truth called The Last Archive. It's about how we know what we know and why it may seem like we don't know anything at all anymore, if ever. Jill, welcome to Recode Decode. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's such a huge treat to be here. Good. Now, you're, now just so you know, Jill is broadcasting from a car in Vermont because she's a game girl, I'll tell you, a game lady. Um, but I really appreciate you doing this. So, I, I you know, I want to talk about your podcast and everything else because there's so, so many things you do intersect with our moment in time. And I think we can probably agree that right now a lot of history is being made uh, at this moment, or we will be looking, we'll all be dead, but we'll be looking back at this uh, period of time with a lot of studying a lot. So tell me where you think we are right now, and then I want to get into what you're doing now with the podcast, but I think it's really important for someone like you to talk a little bit about how you look at the current moment. Yeah, well, we're talking after, I think, what are we on the 11th day of protests over the murder of George Floyd, and uh, we're in a consequential year in so many different ways, and 2020 isn't even quite half over yet. Uh, I think there's a lot more of consequence to happen still. You know, it's interesting, as a historian, I think it was about the mid-90s that people started asking, hey, is this unprecedented? I mean, it just like mm-hmm. at the cocktail party kind of yeah. thing, people yeah. would say, America seems so divided today. Is this unprecedented? Or, <laughs> Our civil discourse is no longer civil. Is this unprecedented? Or, what do you, know, what and, do you do? Do you just go yeah, whiskey well, rebellion? Whiskey rebellion. Yeah, right. I so, so, I mean, it's, it's an understandable question. It's a, it's a weird question. But the answer for a very long time for me was always, no, you know, this isn't unprecedented. Are we so divided? What? Like, I think that the, especially the are we so divided question 
the we is then clearly only the people who have been fully enfranchised for all of American history, right? Like, so long as you understand indigenous people who are disenfranchised, people of color, people under chattel slavery as part of a political system, even if they could don't have the right to vote, like, that's a divided polity, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so so all of my, my answer to those questions was always, you know, no, this isn't unprecedented. There's viciousness and atrocity and brutality in American history, and it's a through line. And it's, you know, the struggle has always been the struggle for justice and to realize the promise of the founding. But it was really, I think, a couple of years ago where I finally... I just sort of woke up one day and I'm like, this is not precedented anymore. Like we are in a new time. And it really, for me, was the moment, the detention camps, the children in cages moment, where I just thought, yes, in some ways, you know, Japanese prison camps, Japanese internment, so-called, there are, you could think of precedents for that, but that was mm-hmm. actually also a new level of inhumanity. Um And everything since then, you know, down to and including the coronavirus pandemic, not so much the fact that there is a plague that humans are vulnerable to that is a new plague, but but our response to it has been so unprecedented and strange. Um, So so no. So I it is a new it's a new moment. And I think I would love to think that historians have wisdom to offer about that beyond saying holy crap, but at some level, like, that's <laughs> holy the crap. answer. Holy crap is not an academic response. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, so when you think about that, I mean, when you, there is a long history of this country from the through line for, through slavery, through indigenous people, through um, Japanese internment camps, through the Salem witch trial. I mean, it goes, there's one after the other, McCarthyism, uh, civil war. We don't want to leave that one out. What has changed from your perspective in the thing? Is it the advent of the ability to communicate through social media and seeing it all uh, or, or just a, a new level of cruelty? Well, I think it's important to pause for a moment and appreciate the idealism and the courage and the leadership, the moral leadership around the world of the United States, and to say these things are still also with us. Mm-hmm. That we have typically, I think, allowed, especially in recent years, our understanding of the American past to become as polarized as our politics, so that mm-hmm. people either believe that American history is an unending series of atrocities, or that American history is a march of incredible progress of freedom. Right. And American history is actually both of those things and always has been both of those mm-hmm. things. Thank and the balance is the balance is different at different moments. But I, I think it's quite important to not allow oneself, given whatever's going on at a particular moment, to kind of buy into either of those extremist accounts, because those really are simply polarized accounts. It, it is really important, and especially the harder it is to remember moments of moral leadership on the behalf of Americans and on behalf of the nation as a whole, that it, it, it remains important. And this is, in fact, a moment of incredible moral force, right? Mm-hmm. Like this, as as tragic as this, this moment is, it is a moment of moral clarity and force. And that is essential to bear in mind. And that is in the best tradition of dissent from the very beginning of, of the nation's history and of the, the peoples who, who now form the nation. So one of the things you were your book is now pre-read at Princeton if Princeton ever gathers again. Uh, I mean it will they will in the, soon enough and or all the universities you're at. But one of the things that I was really struck by was um, when they were talking about Princeton was talking about why they selected your book, which was this this America, which is your most 
the case for the nation. Um, it said it addresses big questions, including one of the most important ethical issues of our time. How could Americans and the people of other nations see themselves as united in a shared quest for common good despite differences and disagreements that might pull them apart? What right now would be your case for the nation? Well, Except the fact that we're here. Yeah, we are here, and we do live in a nation state. And I think it has been a kind of error of the left to believe that the age of the nation state was winding down. Um, that mm-hmm. is to say, really not an error of the left, an error of liberalism, right? The kind of mm-hmm. global globalism endorsers, liberals who believed that we were in a kind of post-national world order after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the um, the collapse of the Soviet Union, that kind of end of history, like Francis Fukuyama sort of argument that now that the ideological battle between capitalism and communism was over and capitalism had won, that liberalism had won, and the nation state and nationalism, these would be things of the past. And so there was a kind of, um, let's not sort of defend the idea of the the idea of America, let's think about the world in global terms. And that's, of course, also an incredibly important aspect of environmentalism that we think in planetary terms. And we can agree with all of that, and yet we live in a nation state with an elected federal government and appointed federal judges. We live in a federal system that is fundamentally national. And what had happened, I think, in my lifetime was the retreat from thinking about the nation as a nation and thinking about American national identity as a real formation on the part of people, you know, in the center and the left meant that the only people who are talking about the nation were people on the pretty far right. Um, and in, especially the people who are talking about the American nation and national history. Right? Like, I don't remember, but like around, like right around when um, Barack Obama was inaugurated, I think it was the day after his inauguration, Glenn Beck started his show on Fox News. Mm-hmm. The Tea Party was just starting up in opposition first to the bailout under Bush, but then to the Affordable Care Act. And Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck together on Fox News sort of taught American history. They Glenn Beck even had this little sort of schoolroom. His set was turned into yes. an American schoolroom with these little oak tables and a blackboard. And they would preach about the founding fathers and this kind of American fundamentalism, sort of divinity of the founding fathers. And it undergirded a lot of the Tea Party movement, but they would preach the greatness of the American nation. And, they and Bill call, O'Reilly did that too. Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly is the best selling American history writer in the country, right? Mm-hmm. Like his books about American history, by far the best sold American history books. And, you know, it's really was propaganda, right? Like it's, it's, There's news value to much that goes on in that world, but this was pure political propaganda. It was it was trying to spur a political rebellion against the Obama administration as if the Obama as if Obama's election was itself a betrayal of history. And the racist underpinnings of that, I think, are clear to all of us. Right. Like the sort of that 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 he was unconstitutional. It just draws on, you know, Dred Scott from 1857, right? Like, it doesn't matter, you know, who you are. If you if you are descended from Africans, you can't ever be, can't ever be an American citizen. So um, I, I think my concern as an American historian who's a scholar and a professor, like, it's my day job, like, is that that prof- we, we don't really teach national history. Like, we don't have a story about the nation because that seems so now such a right thing to, like, a, like a politically rightward thing to do and that it's jingoistic and militaristic and becomes white nationalism. But there actually has to be an account of the nation's past 
that isn't a form of ethnic nationalism. And there is. Like, and there have other generations have had them. And other incredibly powerful writers and thinkers have offered them up, not from the vantage of of a kind of conservative call to return to the founding fathers, but from the vantage of a call for a new Americanism, which is in fact what Obama had campaigned about. I mean, his whole story that his life, he's the son of a white woman from Kansas and a black man from Kenya, that he was the American allegory, right? Like that mixture, that that was this new day and this new Americanism. That actually is a national story that we should, I think, hold on to and figure out and... I think there is a, you know, a historical argument to be made from evidence that both understands and, and appreciates the dangers of nationalism, but that nevertheless can hold on to, I mean, I'm just picturing these people, these tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people out on the street in the last week mm-hmm. calling for a better America. That is actually, I don't mean to sort of neutralize the radicalism of that, but right. that, that radicalism is American. Like that, right. that, that call is us at our very best. So well, I, and I, yeah, kind I, of an I, argument against us at our very worst. Yeah. Yeah. So you, when you're looking at that, when you, when you were teaching history, I was just talking to my kids about this. Um, they're both, I have a baby, but I have two teenagers and we're talking about how stuff is taught and history is taught. And we had a really interesting discussion about what we learn and what's in what's in books and what would, and I was like, gosh, when I was learning, we didn't have a lot of, of diversity in the books. We didn't have, and I went to a pretty, I would say liberal school. How do you then teach history now to students? What's the demands that they have, especially given there's so much information on the internet. My son watches and reads widely. He gets information from everywhere. Some of it isn't good, some of it is good. Some of it's different, some of it has a different point of view. How then do you teach history? Well, I think of history as a form of inquiry, not as a set of stories to be passed down Um, Mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, I think we weirdly conflate a lot of different things under the heading of history that are actually different things. So, for instance, we we talk about chemistry. We understand like you need to know the periodic table and then you need to be able to conduct experiments and to test propositions and reproduce findings. And there's some formulas that you need to know. But really, it's you're trying to understand, you're inquiring about oxygen is oxygen. Yeah, oxygen. Um, but when you think about alchemy, which is, you know, you could do these alchemic sort of magical things that are mystical, like we Mm -hmm. call that alchemy, um, or we don't conflate astronomy, which is a science with astrology, which is a form of mysticism. Like, you know, God bless them both. Like, I would rather hear from an astronomer myself, but, you know, I understand people appreciate astrology. We call very different things history. Like, there's a kind of an alchemy astrology version of history, which is a set of myths, um, some of which is can be kind of quaint and innocent, a kind of folklore. Um, you know, Betsy Ross, like the invented story of Betsy Ross. I mean, like it's wrong. It doesn't make me crazy, but it's not history. It looks like it's not history as an academic discipline and a method of inquiry. Why? Like that's folklore to me. So when I teach history, I teach it as a method of inquiry where, sure, like I've been studying this stuff for a long time. There's the equivalent of the periodic table that I want you to have. And some formulas, like it's actually interesting to ask yourself, like, what's the relevance of uh, legislative change versus protest movements? Like, how, who, you know, does one drive the other? Obviously, yes. But on the other hand, like, when and under what conditions? Like, there are sort of scientific kinds of questions you can ask. So, yeah, so I ask a lot of questions. And I also find, honestly, that I 
I try really hard to learn a lot from my students who have a very acute sense that they are standing on the edge of history and it is a goddamn cliff, you know, and they're looking down into some abyss. And they're also just scouring the ground, trying to think, like, what could we use to build a bridge across this chasm? Like, what are we going to do to get to the next land, like a better tomorrow? Right. Well, this is a perfect uh, chance to take a quick break, but and then get into your podcast, because your podcast is about what is truth and the history of truth. It's called The Last Archive. We're here with Jill Lepore. She's the host of this history podcast, if you call it that, The Last Archive. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Debate time. Who gets more out of Wix Studio, designers or devs? First off, if you don't know about Wix Studio, it's a web platform offering the flexibility agencies and enterprises need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Now, back to the debate. Designers, you can create fully responsive websites, starting with a blank canvas or choose a template for any layout and tweak per pixel with your CSS. If no code's your thing, or you just like to move fast, there's also a ton of smart features, like native no-code animations and responsive AI that adjusts every breakpoint. Devs, Wix Studio offers a powerful suite of homegrown web APIs and REST APIs. Quickly integrate, extend, and write custom scripts in a VS code-based IDE alongside an AI code assistant. Designers or developers, search Wix Studio and find out for yourself. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're here with Jill Lepore, a professor of American history at Harvard and a staff writer for The New Yorker. She's author of several books, but she's also now doing a podcast, a history podcast called The Last Archive, which is a fantastically creepy name uh, for what it is. And it's a murder mystery, crime story. It's a lot of things. It's an inquiry into a lot of things. Jill, why don't you talk a little bit about what you're doing with The Last Archive? Yeah, so uh, I'm a huge fan of radio, like especially 1930s radio drama, which yep. is a is a genre that continues well across the 20th century and into the 21st uh, yeah. in different in different forms, especially in the UK. It kind of fell out of favor in the US at some point when people watch TV instead. But when radio first started, it was just like going to the theater. Like there were these dramatic, mm-hmm. like people yeah, like, who ran shows clock, tried to clock, figure out how yeah. to adapt yeah. that to this new form, like vaudeville, or would they have dramatic plays and and mysteries? It was the great era of detective fiction. 
And so they figured out a way to do radio, you know, to do drama on the radio with sound effects. It's incredibly interesting. For, it's an incredibly interesting storytelling form. Um, so I love that. And I wanted to do a podcast that used that form. And I also quite like true crime. And I think podcasts have, you know, they got their start with serial Sarah Koenig's murder mystery, which was true crime. And yet I also, I find many of the conventions of true crime deeply unsettling for reasons having mm-hmm. to do with the way women are always the victims, the way mm-hmm. the way the police are always, you know, the sort of gumshoeing here. Like there's a kind of Raymond right. Chandler weirdness there. Very Black Dahlia. Yeah. So I wanted to do an investigative podcast that had some of the conventions of 1930s radio drama and that worked in some sense like a true crime. But I knew all along that the questions I wanted to ask were really meta questions, big historical philosophical questions about truth. Mm-hmm. And I, I decided I wanted to do that largely because... I teach a course at the law school called The History of Evidence that looks at mm-hmm. how we know things in different fields, different realms of knowledge across centuries to try to kind of figure out the genealogy of those things from an incredibly rich scholarship that's the history of science, history of philosophy, history of the law that I love. And that it turns out the students always find really interesting because, you know, everyone has this problem of like, geez, why is it? Everything seems so squishy lately. Like what? Like how everything, like every sort of institution of knowledge arbitration seems to be falling apart. Like the court seems so partisan. The New York Times is firing opinion page editors. Like this, just the TV is, is nuts. Like we're like just in popular culture. What is it, you know, just to sort of get to the themes, you know, of this amazing podcast of yours, you know, what is it about technological change that is changing technologies of communication that has left us so vulnerable to kinds of misinformation and has has led to this kind of sort of epistemic crisis of, of doubt. So and what, that's, you're essentially saying who killed truth, although I don't think truth has ever been that lively in our country. But, uh, <laughs> but, but it's really about that, like who killed things that we did depend on for truth. Yeah, I mean, that's the premise fact. of the show that we're trying to figure out. We're trying to solve that mystery. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But it's not who killed facts, or is it who killed facts or is it who killed truth that's what no, i was trying I, to yeah figure out i mean it really is the, the argument that the show makes over the first season is an argument i've made and you know in essays before as well which is that i suggest that the elemental unit of knowledge that like if mm-hmm. you could reduce you know like energy to calories and you know mm-hmm. uh, electricity to watts like what would be the unit of knowledge that 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 the elemental unit of knowledge has changed over time from the mystery of the kind of medieval church like essentially a thing that only God can know, to the fact, which is something that we associate with the rise of empiricism, an action that we can observe, that we can confirm, to the number, which we associate with the rise of statistics and quantitative thinking, to now data. And that that unit has changed. And that, in fact, the larger argument that this isn't really a spoiler because it's kind of tough going, it's a little bit of heavy lifting. But the argument of the larger long story of this first season is that the rise of the A's of age of data. It's essentially data killed facts in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and data, oh, I know that. Data has a whole lot in common, exactly. Data has a whole lot in common with the mystery because in the age of data, at least as I kind of define it and describe it, data is sort of what a machine can know, but you cannot. Like you cannot actually observe it directly. Like a fact is something you can establish by inspection and discern human capacity for this reason and apple. judgment. This is an apple, right? right? Or, you know, this, I, I saw, I, I'm a witness to this crime. I saw this. But data-driven knowledge is knowledge that requires 
computation that can only be done by machines. So it's the, the detection of patterns and prediction. So it is essentially a return to the age of mystery, mm-hmm. which it took, you know, centuries to reform, right? The whole Protestant Reformation was about saying, you know, no, humans actually have the capacity to tell what's true and to know what's right. Like, we have a capacity for reason. Right. So I find that, that element of the age of data deeply, deeply, deeply unsettling. And for me, working with this material in the class, it seemed to me that it was useful analytically to the students to at least have a language to kind of offer up a theory mm-hmm. of what's going on. People can argue against that thesis, but that's the argument that the podcast makes. It's also the idea of the scale of information that we have, the amount of data. And I think one of the things, and what data goes in to have what output, you know, I'm always sort of bugging technologists who try to sort of run around me like with these brilliant things. And I said, all I know is what my grandfather told me is crap in, crap out. That's really kind of the same <laughs> idea, like even if it's a massive amount of it. And they, they sort of get stopped dead because it's actually true of what what gets, whatever it's police data or uh, crime data or whatever goes in. So talk a little bit about some of the episodes to get people interested in, because I mean, they're, they're so varied. Like the first one starts off with a murder. Uh, it goes to polio. It goes to all kinds of different ways. Um, which one is, did you have one that was a favorite? And can you just sort of give uh, listeners an idea of what, uh, yeah, what yeah. you think was? Yeah, I, I have um, these two wonderful producers, Sophie Crane McKibben and Ben Nat of Halfrate. And we, when we finished the first season, we, we realized we agreed on which our favorites were. But the, how the series works, the first season is 10 episodes, and it's roughly one episode for each decade of the 20th century. So looking at a signal moment where kind of how we knew things like a kind of older regime of knowledge was challenged. So the polio episode is about the discovery of the polio vaccine, but it's in fact about the crisis during which in 1955, Eisenhower as Secretary of Health, Education and Welfare, who was a conservative, former conservative Democrat, become conservative Republican, didn't want the federal government to be involved in distributing the vaccine because that was socialism. And it had this huge cost in terms of people's lives. Um, so what does it mean to sort of know something but then be unable to act on a body of knowledge because of a political commitment, which is a very live question for us today? Um, the episode that, that I think we all loved most is episode nine, which is actually about what we can learn from birds. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't get uh, to nine yet. The, almost the whole episode is birdsong, and it's about the first efforts to record birdsong. And what counting birds and listening to birds has taught scientists over the 20th century. It's a lot about a particular story involving Rachel Carson. But there's this very, I mean, in terms of your grandfather's incredible wisdom of crap in, crap out. There's also carefully collected information in and carefully collected findings out. You know, there's the opposite of that. And the the science of ornithology, which is just not politicized, like... Mm-hmm. Oh, it was the other day in the park, if you remember, but go ahead. Oh, okay, 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 okay. That's true, that's true. You're right. (laughs) But he was right, and that woman was wrong. I stand corrected. We all know that. I think pretty much everybody. But the science of, I mean, it is actually citizen science. It's one of these incredible success stories, one of the few real success stories of citizen science, because I don't know if you're a bird watcher. I am not, I confess, but there's a um, annual Christmas bird count. People go out the week of Christmas and count birds, and that data has been going on for decades. It was actually when the National Audubon Society was founded and people were hunting birds to extinction. The Audubon Society had this kind of great idea to convince people to count birds instead. Like it would be like hunting them. It'd be fun. You'd go out and you'd chase them. It'd be like hunting them. 
But then you would just count them. And it was competitive, like who could count the most and who could get right. the, the longest bird list. But anyway, that evidence has been extraordinarily important in charting climate change because mm-hmm. birds really are kind of canary in the coal mine. Like the right. United, the North, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, I think, together have lost 3 billion birds yep. since Yeah, there was just a story today about yeah. extinction again. So um, it's this incredible bellwether. But the fact that we know that is because of this careful recording that ordinary citizens, I mean, there are scientists who do this as well, but ordinary citizens have done this. And so what is it, what does it tell us to have this great giant body of evidence that tells us many things about pollution and climate change, and yet people have not acted on it in ways that you could mitigate these effects? Right. So talk about that idea, because one of the things I think what you're getting at, this is my feelings you're getting at, is that you, people do have all this information and do nothing about it. I think that was a good example yeah, of that. Yeah, I mean, it's just that people do have facts at their disposal. People yeah. do have facts about racism. And in fact, even in this modern, this now with these videos, I mean, George uh, Floyd's video, what, there were 12 of them before it. Uh, mm-hmm. equally tragic. This one yeah. was yeah. extraordinary. I mean, nine minutes is a long time uh, to watch this unfold. But there's been, you know, I can I could name a dozen of them that are just the same thing. And people look at them and see them. And that's one thing that technology has afforded us, the ability like, look, um, it's just filmed racism now. We can now, you know, see it on our cell phones. Why is, even with this data, when you're talking about killing truth or killing facts. I think you're talking about killing truth really more than facts because the facts are there. It's just nobody will see the truth. Yeah. So I can give you two examples from the podcast where we reckon with that. One is um, episode four, which is called Unheard, which is about the legal category known as Negro evidence. So I would suggest that, and this is very, you know, we end with Black Lives Matter um, and the use of video. And I would suggest that it is a very, very, very long history and a long legacy. But Negro evidence was a a legal category invented uh, in the 17th century in the English colonies to exclude from the possibility of ever testifying in court any person who was enslaved. The only exception would be when you were allowed to admit Negro evidence is when a Black person is providing testimony accusing another person of color of engaged in a conspiracy to commit a crime against a white person. So there's this very weird, very peculiar, and you you have to take this, you have to swear this out. But in, in any other way, Black people cannot provide testimony in a court. They're just actually not to be relied upon. And so you need other forms of evidence. So that, for instance, when Frederick Douglass is a young man, he's beaten up by kind of this white mob. And the only people that observe the crime are a bunch of other enslaved men who are working with him. This is in Baltimore. And his owner wants to get compensation for the harm done to his property, who is this human being, Frederick Douglass. And the owner can't get compensation because there was no white witness. And Douglass says, like, you know, there were hundreds of black people watching, but none of them are, none of them count as evidence because of the rule of Negro evidence. Mm-hmm. And that, I, I actually think... People don't know even what that phrase means, Negro evidence. You don't have, you know, only a few legal scholars think about it. But it nevertheless has a huge, casts a huge shadow over our courts and over the culture itself. So that, you know, what counts as evidence, like unless you can see it on film, if you're just listening to what black people say, it can't really be believed. Like there's this whole long, centuries long legal culture, popular culture around negating the testimony 
of black people. So there's an incidence where there's actually, yes, these things are known. I mean, it was a huge problem for abolitionists who wanted to say, look, slavery is brutal. It's horrible. And slave owners would say, you know, slavery is better than northern industrialism. And abolitionists would have a hard time convincing white middle-class audiences that that wasn't true until the age of photography. And then they would start taking photographs of Black people's bodies, which are themselves kind of pornographic. But what they did, there's this book from 1839 called um, American Slavery As It Is, The Testimony of a Thousand Witnesses. And it's published by the Anti-Slavery Society. They just went through the newspapers and cut out ads for runaway slaves that say things like, you know, Betsy has run away, she has no right hand, it was chopped off for impudence, and she isn't, her feet are shackled, and she bears whip marks on her face. You know, like that this was the, isn't this enough testimony? There was always this issue of like, how do you show the brutal violence that is done to the bodies of Black people? Um, So there is a long legacy of that, and it is, you know, an incredible story about technology. Like for Frederick Douglass, his hope, he thought all this would end with photography, I think he had the hope mm-hmm. in photography that yeah, many yeah. You see it. M- sort of revolutionaries had with the internet. Like, okay, we'll be able to, like, we've got it on Periscope. We've, it's on Facebook Live. Like, they, right. it, but Rodney King was videotaped and yeah. it's still. That's what I was saying to my kids. I made them watch the, it. The, the fantasy that technology will fix injustice yeah. is always a fantasy. It's a fantasy in two ways. It's a fantasy on the part of people who are seeking the justice. And it's a fantasy on the part of the people who are selling the technology. So mm-hmm. there's no one arguing against it. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, one of the things I always tell uh, people when, I, um, when I'm trying to t- teach them journalism, I always say, you should uh, believe what you see and not see what you believe, uh, which always tends to mess it up. And even, even in this age, when you have videos like that, you, get, you see what has happened there. It's so obvious. And then you can, now you have on the Internet voices airing doubts about it, like, or put, putting actual misinformation up. And I think that's right. really, it gets so noisy. And so it's not that necessarily who killed truth is that you can't hear it. Like, you can't hear it given all the other noisy aspects of it anymore. I mean, you could hardly right. hear it before. Now you really can't hear it. Right. And it gets, like, right. by malevolent people with disinformation, it becomes even worse. How do yeah. you look at that when you're looking at, when you're trying well, to be a historian? And all these voices are screaming. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing to think about that and I, I say this actually in this episode, Unheard, which is about Negro evidence, that our political polarization, so-called, dates to really about 1965-1968, which is the Voting Rights Act, really. So before in American history, before 1965, we just weren't really, a, I don't think, arguably a democracy, right? Like, you can't disenfranchise a whole category of people who are constitutionally eligible to vote and say that you are a democracy. And... Polarization has increased since then. And if if polarization is the price we pay for a fully enfranchised electorate, I'll pay it. You know, like if there are going to be more voices, there are going to be more voices. But that said, we need to find out new ways to kind of arbitrate. Like the premise of our system of laws around speech in the press is in a fair fight on a fair field, in a battle between truth and error, truth will always win. Like that's like from Benjamin Franklin, right? The thing is, we don't have a fair fight in a fair field anymore, like between money and elections, Citizens United and platform issues and the, you know, the problems with amplification on the Internet and especially with an unregulated social media. There is no fair fight. There is no fair field. So the rules don't really make sense anymore. 
But I think I just wanted to tell one other story in answer to your question about why do people not, like if the facts are there and you can see them, why don't things change? In our bird episode, we looked at this incredible study. I don't know if you ever read this or interviewed this woman, Fran Moore. She's at UC Davis. She did this really clever study of tweets, which are kind of like human bird song. You know, they like, are indeed. Tweet, tweet, tweet. So she, um, she gathered together geotagged tweets about the weather for a long period, for as long as she could, where people said, it's really hot today, or Jesus, it's so cold for September. Mm-hmm. And then collated it all with actual weather data from those places and observed that it took really between two and five years for people to get completely used to different weather and forget that the weather was ever different. And like, you don't, and, and she, she argues that that's actually kind of a species wisdom because you don't say, I'm going to plant my corn now or go hunt for bear now because it's April 15th. And because last year I hunted on April 15th or because you don't say, because in my childhood, I know that when the weather was like this, I did that, you know, like you do it from like what you most recently remember because the weather changes all the time and the conditions change all the time. And you might be in a new part of the world. Like actually it's not adaptive to remember the weather of your childhood along a calendar. It's just not like it's adaptive to remember about two years worth of weather. So people don't. So even though we know like intellectually about climate change, people normalize, like literally acclimate to it really fast. And that's not because they're, Mm -hmm. sure, they're doubtless being influenced by the incredible money that the fossil fuel industry is paying to tell them, you know, that there is no climate change or whatever it is. But it's just actually hard to reckon with that change. Yeah, yeah. Well, the frog boiling, I think that's what you're getting to. When we get back, we're talking to uh, Jill Lepore. She's the host of the history podcast, The Last Archive. I also want to talk to her about what, uh, I love social media being called, uh, like uh, Twitter being called birds, because you're exactly right. But her new podcast is called The Last Archive. Her next book is called If Then, which is out in September. So I'd like her to talk a little bit about how she sees the impact of technology on this and what it can do to actually help things, if at all. We're here with Jill Lepore. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G Podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropG Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We're here with Jill Lepore. She's obviously a well-known historian, writer, and now a podcaster. We were just talking about her podcast, The Last Archive. So one of the things you you get in, I want to talk a little bit about technology because your new book is about technology. But before that, you talk about a movie I love, which is also I'm obsessed with, The Invisible Man, but the old one, The Old Invisible Man, because it's so crazy, especially uh, uh, as Claude Rains plays it. Talk a little bit about that episode because I thought that was really wonderful. I happened to have shared, I just was watching clips of it on uh, YouTube after uh, listening to you. So, uh, and I watch them all the time and I'm not sure why. Um, so talk a little bit about that, what you're trying to get out, the invisibility, because there, that's a theme also throughout that is invisible things that are visible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that are, are visible, but pretend to be invisible. Yeah, I think that, um, so there's a, the third episode of the season is ostensibly about the invisible lady, which was the most popular kind of exhibit in the United States in the 19th century, you'd go into a room and there was a, supposedly this invisible da- lady there and you'd talk with her. And I, I th- so the, the episode is very theme-based. It kind of follows this theme of invisibility and especially the invisibility of women and the relationship between visibility and knowledge. So then the relationship between knowledge and privacy. And so argues that there is always a tension between, you know, wanting to know more things and needing to recognize the limits of what you can know about another person. Like, can you look inside their heart? Can you look inside their head? What is it that psychology does? What, you know, how do we understand the limits of wh- what we can know about other people? And mm-hmm. there's a whole gender piece of that that the series traces in in large part. But it also does, in fact, set up the later episodes that are about data, because one of the things that's interesting about um, the era of The Invisible Man, which is written in 1897, and the film version that I talk about is from 1933 or 31, mm-hmm. is that in between there is the is the uh, the wiretap, Supreme Court wiretapping case, Olmstead v. U.S., where Brandeis says, like, there's going to always be new technologies that are going to be able to invade our homes, and we shouldn't allow them. He says this in a dissent that is much cited. And of course, Brandeis and his law partner, Sammy Warren, are responsible for the right to privacy as a doctrine uh, on which most of our debates about data are now hinging. So part of the episode is setting up what comes later, which are battles over who owns data. And that is actually a big part of what led me to... So the book that's coming out in September, If Then, is about this weird forgotten company called the Simulmatics Corporation, which was founded in 19... 59 and goes bankrupt in 1970. But it's one of the first real data, for-profit data firms. They collect data mm-hmm. and they then they make mo- models, predictive models, and they sell the models. Yeah, right. yeah it's, like, it's, all, it's like a series of if-then statements. And I, I guess I was just really fascinated to think about how early that was. Because it really drives me bonkers that Silicon mm-hmm. Valley entrepreneurs think they invented everything and everything that they do came out of <laughs> nowhere. They're all geniuses. <laughs> it's all mysticism. They're gods. We should worship them. 
Well, they're only geniuses until they can't fix something, and then it's really hard. Just so yeah, you- and then it's really hard. It's too hard for you and me to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it drives me bonkers because all of it just has an incredibly complicated history, but it's mm-hmm. really easy to, I mean, it's all, it all really comes out of Cold War psychological warfare. Like, it really mm-hmm. is who says what to whom and to what effect is like the basic, like Harold Laswell's psychology of propaganda from the First World War. So Laswell kind of invented the rules of, you know, psychological warfare, used them in the Second World War, trained a group of graduate students in those tools. They got out of graduate school, became professors, and then they started Simulmatics (laughs) to get John Kennedy elected president in 1960 by coming up with a predictive model of the electorate and figuring out what are the messages that Kennedy should... It was the Cambridge Analytica of the Cold War. And then that worked. And so then they start selling their services to advertising companies and to manufacturers and to media companies and to the Defense Department. They have a Saigon office. They do PSYOPs in Vietnam. And they they, they kind of established... So when I found all this stuff in the archives and also interviewed people, I found it incredibly helpful because I often have this experience when I'm on my phone for a long time that I do actually feel like someone's like kind of messing with me. You know, like... They, yeah. I'm getting the ad when I'm on Gmail. I'm getting the ad for the thing that I was just thinking about. And it's, it actually all comes from psychological warfare. Like you are actually the object of psychological warfare. Like you're being interrupted, well, you're being they distracted. They don't need a lot of data to do it. It's really interesting. Even, you know, even companies that you may trust, like Apple, would I, I have a little trick and sometimes if I meet you, I'll show it to you. I bet your settings are on in a way you don't realize. But I, I pulled out someone's iPhone and they're like, oh, I trust Apple. And I said, let me just... Find yeah, out what you yeah. did yesterday. And they're like, how do you know that? It's not recorded here. And I went to a settings on Apple and I was like, you went here for 45 minutes and you had ice cream and you went here and you did this. And they're like, what? Uh, and it, yeah. you know, I was like, I'm not even good at this. Like, it's I'm not yeah. even psychically. But you're right that there is this sense. There's, of course, the conspiracy sense that you search something on Google or you say something in your home and then it's you see an ad on Google. There's that conspiracy part. And then there's the real thing, which is they are using data to target you in ever more nefarious ways, um, including politically. Yeah. So I found the book really fun to work on in the sense that I wanted to hunt for where that came from. Like, how did that come to be okay? Like, why is that allowed? And, you know, to take that story back, you know, not, yes, we need to think about the 1996 Telecommunications Act. Like, I wrote a lot about that in my history of the United States. I really think about that a lot. I recognize a lot of work going on to kind of revisit that and that said that political settlement that I think we didn't really agree to. But I really wanted to understand the earlier version of that. Yeah. What happened? Well, I, I will wait. I'm going to interview you again when the book comes out for when I move over to the New York Times. But where did that go from, though? Where did then it became just sort of the law, right? Or the idea that this is what data companies should do? Which yeah, is I collect think that, egregiously. Um, which is collect egregiously and, and track you and simulate. And that, mm-hmm. that work of simulation, which kind of fascinating me now, like if you look now at companies that build their services as predictive analytics or what if simulations, mm-hmm. they all say yeah. how they invented it. It's like, wait a minute, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like <laughs> behavioral science of the 1950s invented these behavioral science simulations and they don't right. work. Like it is actually largely crap. Like that's, the, it's just yeah. hooey, yeah. but um, anybody will Cambridge buy it. Analytics. It's like you can, yeah. you know, Cambridge, it's, it's who just, you don't need to do that, <laughs> but right. you can sell it. Um, so, yeah, it leads to, you know, the birth of that industry. The other thing they're really involved in, um, I guess maybe in an adjacent way, is the defeat of the proposal for the National Data Center in 1966 when the federal government under Johnson's administration 
wanted to have the government be in charge of personal data in the sense that not all of it, but in the sense that the government had a lot of personal data scattered throughout, you know, the Social Security Administration, the Veterans Administration, the Bureau of Prisons, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And they wanted it kind of all in one place. So they wanted to, to build an analog. So the National Archives holds government manuscripts and the Library of Congress holds a copy of every book. That the National Data Center would hold all that data and would be tagged so that it would could be in communication with one another. And if they had done that, there would have been, I mean, there's dangers to doing that. This is how it got defeated. But there would have at least been a set of rules and regulations because the government, the Johnson, the kind of great society was full of rules and regulations. But it was defeated by libertarians on libertarian grounds. And it kind of just turned the conversation away from regulation into kind of panic. So, ironically, it's libertarians who run Silicon Valley, or I call them libertarian lights because I don't think they have any, I don't think they finished that class at college um, about what a libertarian actually is. But that's their idea of libertarianism in Silicon Valley. Even as they rapaciously collect and target you and collect data without asking you. So what, where does that lead to? I'd love to finish up. Where do you, Did you come to a conclusion of where this leads? Because you have a bunch of people who claim to be libertarians collecting the most data in human history. And, and you know, the government's right in there, too, as you saw from the Snowden revelations. Yeah. But everyone's using these tools to collect data on you. And you are a willing participant in it by carrying yeah. around a giant a computer that tells everyone yeah. where you are and what you're doing. Well, I think one reason that happened was because of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers and Watergate and those revelations that came out between 1971 and 1974 about the mm -hmm. government, that the government could not be trusted. So people who had, for instance, argued against the National Data Center, like, it's a good thing we didn't, you know, we shouldn't trust the government. Look at what Nixon has done. Look at the ways that the Johnson administration uh, and the Kennedy administration, the Truman administration have been lying to us. They've also been collecting data, the Army surveillance files, there's a whole, you know, congressional investigation into the secret surveillance of the army that those guys, the kind of Stuart brands of the world came of age and ARPANET was born at a moment when you couldn't trust the government. And so some of these guys, you know, the kind of uh, the kind of hippie Stuart brand, like Mary Prankster's guys that Fred Turner writes about from uh, counterculture to uh, I forget the title of the rest of his book, um, that they they were really left, very left libertarians. Like they mm -hmm. wanted they to found mm -hmm. a kind of new communalism in which we could have a personal computer and personal devices. And then in the kind of John Perry Barlow way, be all wired together in this beautiful right. Kumbaya way. Yeah. And peace would and prevail. They, and then they didn't quite anticipate or understand the bedfellows they were sleeping with who wanted to be sure that also corporations didn't have any rules around them. Like, I think these guys were kind of anti-Vietnam War, anti-Nixon, White House Justice Department, anti-government types. They weren't anti-corporate types because they just didn't think about what corporations would do with that stuff. But by, you know, yanking out all of the teeth of the federal government and having a regulatory capacity, not only against itself, but against corporations, then they create this. And Brand made that leap. I mean, Brand made that leap to, you know, founding a global entrepreneur corporation. Right. They come to think that, you know, in that kind of Newt Gingrich progress and freedom moment in 1994, you know, when Esther Dyson is writing the whatever, the new Magna Carta, that I, they, they just kind of, I think they're, this is going to seem contemptuous, but I think they're deeply incurious about 
the real possibility of sinister action on behalf of corporations. Like they just have not thought that through. To some degree, they're selling out. Like a lot of these guys are getting a lot of money. This is the moment, for instance, like uh, Brand goes, I write about this in the Simomatics book. He goes to visit the MIT Media Lab when it's founded. The year it's founded, he becomes a fellow there. He writes this love letter about it. He writes this book called How the MIT Media Lab is Inventing the Future. It's like, thank God for these geniuses who are getting all their money from corporations. They're going to give us personal newspapers. And it's like, <laughs> I was there. You, I was what there. What are you talking about? What are you? I said that look exactly. Look at these guys. Like, who are these guys? Yeah. It's like Marvin Minsky. Like, these are not, I'm sorry, but the basic problem of all these guys, like, the guys who found Simulmatics, all of their marriages, except for one, completely fall apart. And they build these machines to try to understand women and predict their behavior so they can sell them dishwashers and to try to understand people of color so they can control. Like, they build, during in 68, they work for the Kerner Commission. They're trying to devise a riot prediction machine so that mm-hmm. they can address race riots by predicting them. Like, I'm like, what? <laughs> what? What? Who thinks that is the thing you do? But that is, it's the it's incredible hubris of that mid-century behavioral science. Mark Zuckerberg. Nice to meet you. Nice yeah. to meet you, Mark Zuckerberg. Like, exactly. They have no irony. There is not, there's not, if they needed irony to live, they couldn't, there was, there's not an ounce of it in Silicon Valley. No, and there's they have a... not an ounce self-reflection either. None, none, zero. And no curiosity about where their own ideas come from. So the no. disavowal of, you know, like, Ah, well, we're Uber. We don't need to study what taxis do or what public transportation does or how infrastructures work in transportation. History is irrelevant. Anything anybody else Mm -hmm. knows is irrelevant. We're going to blow it up and start again. We're going to disruptively innovate because we're gods. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, but wait, (laughs) what about you could analyze the system a little bit? What about you could think about the public health effects? What about you could think about the environmental effects? Like knowledge that comes out of universities is meaningful just because it's not where you get, like, just because you dropped out because you're too brilliant for your professors. Like, like the, the lack of humility also. Well, well I you know, I, I have one more. I could too. This is my <laughs> whole life. This is all I type into the New York Times column every week. Um, I have the quote I was thinking of was by Richard Wright, which is kind of appropriate, which is men can starve from the lack of self-realization as much as they can from the lack of bread. And that's what they, they just have no self-realization or his sense of history. So my last question for you is this. You were a historian 100 years from now trying to make sense of this with all the tweets, with all the information, with all the bad information. What do you do as a historian in 100 years looking at this? Like, how would you even begin to understand what the truth is, even if you're trying to figure out what killed it? Yeah, I think it's a real challenge. I mean, I guess one way that I look at it from now, which would I assume influence a future me if I were to be able to Mm -hmm. imagine that, is there seems to me to be a pretty regular pattern around shifts, big revolutions and technologies of communications and our political order, which is to say, when a new technology of communication emerges, so the penny press, that is say the daily newspaper that anybody can buy, almost anybody can buy, or the telegraph or the telephone, the radio, the television, cable television, the internet and social media, each of those revolutions in communications tends to take power away from political elites and bring it or it is seized by um, the political masses or whoever the political masses at the time. So the penny press, it's the, you know, the poor white male voter, the Jacksonian voter, the, you know, the Irish immigrant who has a right to vote for the first time in human history, poor white men can vote. 
And there's a period of political disequilibrium. And eventually political elites figure out a way to kind of retract, retake some of that political power or Mm -hmm. to make a political settlement with those people. So usually what happens in American political history, there are party systems. That is to say there's different parties, but a party system is a kind of stable political order that lasts for a while. I think there have been seven. The party system shifts from like the Federalists versus the Jeffersonians to the Democrats versus the Whigs or whatever. Like the party system shifts all coincide with revolutions in political communications. So Mm -hmm. I... Just as I imagine this moment, I think we're still in the disequilibrium caused by social media, mm-hmm. you know, even thinking of that starting like 15 years ago. And we haven't, there hasn't been a new settlement, either of the abolition of the party system or the emergence of two, I mean, both of the parties are not even functioning parties anymore, but there would be some different party system arrangement and there would be a different sharing of power between elites and everybody else. I don't know what that will look like, but that would be the question I would, you know, that'd be the thing I would be looking for in what would be the crazy archival trail left behind by this weird moment. Yeah. And how would you deal with President Trump's tweets as a historian? Um, you know, I think the wisest thing... Because they, yeah, they are history. Yeah. You know, um, Masha Gessen had a column about this recently. Pretty sure it was her, where she said the thing is like, you can't read them, you can't not read them. Like, you, you you can't read them because they're trash and brutal and nonsense and, like, literally nonsense, like, make no sense. Yes, we know. But you can't not read them because they're the president and they're news. So as a historian, there's got to be a way to reckon with that, too. I, I don't myself know what it is. You know, when I wrote this history of the United States, these truths I plan to end on Barack Obama's inauguration day in 2009... And then Trump was elected president. I thought, well, I guess I have to go to Election Day 2016 because it's just too big of a historic event to leave out when I could kind of cover it. And it was so hard. This was in 2017, trying to make sense of that election. You know, what were the forces that made it possible? What did it mean? What would his presidency mean? And I think a lot now about, well, you know, I should probably write a new chapter, you know, for the next printing that goes to 2020 and through that election... And it is, historians think, and I think wisely, that because part of being a historian is the requirement that you have a kind of humility about what you don't know, mm-hmm. you can't tell from here. Like, you have to stand on top of a mountain and look down mm-hmm. to the valley. Right. So you can see, get some sense of perspective. Like, where we, you know, right now, we're just in the valley. I mean, like, we are literally in the streets. So how are we going to see that? It's going to take some time. Yeah. Well, that is a good way to end. I heartily recommend that you listen to uh, Jill Lepore's podcast and read all of her books. Jill, thank you for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer is Eric Anderson at Erica America. My producer is Eric Johnson at Hey Hey ESJ. Jill, where can people find you and all your myriad of content online? Yeah, I have a website. Uh, that's just my Harvard faculty webpage, JillLepore.com. And I don't have uh-huh. any social media because I'm kind of against it. Oh, all right then. Good for you. Um, it's really bad, so don't. it's good <laughs> that you're not there. Anyway, but someday you'll be studying it, I'm sure. Um, if you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Special thanks to Squadcast.fm. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.
more to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.